0: Okay, uh, so why don't I do the introductions, um, and uh, I just prepped a little bit on your long uh, bio, but I won't have everything on your bio, but I'm gonna make this a little more personal because uh, we actually know each other really well, um, because our kids went together um, to uh, a Harvard daycare, and so of course what I would like to share with you is how you know her daughter's doing, how her son is doing, <laughs> how things are evolving, um, but I'm not gonna do that. So I'm gonna focus on your really <laughs> professional identity. Um, and here's Hannah, but let me try mm-hmm. to do it anyway. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. Um, time so Lakshmi is a, an Associate Professor and a Marvin Bauer Fellow at the Harvard Business School just across the river, uh, so we're delighted that, that you join us here today. She's an expert on many different questions, including um, gender and including policies relevant to closing gender gaps, um, but also has spent a lot of time thinking about property rights and institutions related to property rights, in various uh, emerging markets, including in India, Vietnam, China, um, and the Philippines, and I think today you're going to talk about women's political participation in India. Yes, that's what I was, uh, thought. In India, I mean in a particularly interesting experiment from which the whole world should be learning of what happened there, why did they do that, what what were the impacts, and so we're all extremely um, excited about you being here and sharing that with us. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Elise.
0: Yeah. And I want to add.
2: I was particularly excited to have you here because, I mean, Rashmi does all this wonderful work at the, at the intersection of kind of status and gender and identity and also within the developing world. And we're so interested. There's so many folks here who want to make sure that we break out of this U.S. perspective. And so we're thrilled. And I'm going to... I got held up in a conversation. We've been teaching about stereotypes in one of the required mm-hmm. courses. And there's a lot, about, a lot of energy around intersections of race and gender and whether yes. we're fully exploring them. And so, forgive me, that's where, I, that's where I was, caught up in that, but we are thrilled to have you here. Thank you very
1: much. So thank you all for coming. Um, this is joint work with Sonia Balotra at Essex and Irma Figueres at Madrid. And this paper is motivated by the fact that the representation of women in political office is extremely low. So, if you look at the Indian parliament right now, uh, we have 11% women, which is a historic high. And I thought that was terrible, but then I looked at the United States. (laughs) (laughs) The women are 18% of the US Congress. There are 20 women in the Senate right now, which is a historic high. So I said, OK, maybe it's not terrible, but it just shows that things are not right. Uh, UK is a little bit better. 22% of British MPs are women. But as you can see, we are a very, very long way from any kind of parity. And this is not only important because we think you know, if 50% of the electorate is women, we should have adequate representation. But other studies have shown that it makes a big difference to policy choices if you get more women elected to political office. (coughs) So I'm just citing a few papers here. There's a large literature on this. So if you look at uh, Chattopadhyay and Duflo, 2004, they look at these uh, local government quotas for women in India, and they show that when women get into local councils, the spending choices are more tailored to things women like. Uh, similarly, other authors, the next three papers basically show in India and Brazil that other outcomes like infant mortality, education, health, all improve when you have more women elected to political office. So this is a you know, net benefit to all of society, one would think. So I have a paper as well, which I presented here a couple of years ago, which shows that if you elect women to local government uh, councils, they are much more willing to go and report uh, abuses to the police. So the number of recorded crimes against women jumps up dramatically, but it's because the victims are coming forward and the police are listening to them now. So that makes it obviously that's the first step in trying to get justice. So it, it is important for a range of outcomes, uh, and partly motivated by these, a lot of countries have introduced a variety of quotas to increase women's political representation. So as I said, in India there are gu- quotas at the local government level, so that's district and village. There's also a bill has been proposed to extend these quotas. To the higher levels, to the state and the national legislatures, and that bill is still not passed. So there is a lot of opposition uh, to that bill when it comes to positions of real power, the most powerful ones.
0: absolutely not yeah. being part of your talk, but um, do you know what happened in Brazil? Because I actually am not familiar with the
1: Brazilian results. Oh. So how did that how did that come about? That's then? not the quota. So they're looking in a very similar structure oh. to what we do. They're looking at mayoral elections in which a woman wins in a close election against a man. Oh, I see. So, so you get a female mayor versus a male mayor. So we are also going to use a regression discontinuity design. Oh. Mm. That's, that's, that's so that's what we are looking at in this paper is can women's political participation increase in the absence of quotas through a kind of endogenous process. Uh, so let me explain uh, more precisely what we do. So we investigate whether a woman's electoral success encourages further participation of women in politics. Is there some kind of a demonstration effect provided by seeing a woman winning a competitive election against a man? And this is related to the fact that, you know, the underrepresentation of women in politics uh, at the top levels, which is what we're looking at, the state and national legislatures. Mirrors this underrepresentation at the top levels of many other professions. So if you look at the business world, you look at you know hedge fund managers, you look at all sorts of things. There are very few women, and there's been a range of explanations proposed uh, for this underrepresentation of women. So people have talked <coughs> about gender discrimination, the lack of female role models, which makes women uh, aspire less to those kind of uh, professions. Uh, have, people have documented that women have a distaste for competitive uh, environments that they have lower ambition uh, in general for themselves as a personal ambition, they have more family responsibilities, poor negotiation skills, and so on. There's a laundry list of explanations. We cannot investigate all of those. Because we are looking specifically at competitive elections, where a woman has already, in a sense, overcome what you call it, her lack of (coughs) personal ambition or whatever to come forward, our explanations will be focusing on those related to discrimination, and to the self-selection of women into politics, which might be related to the presence or absence of role models. And I'll discuss this in, again, all the mechanisms in great detail when I come uh, a bit later, about which are the specific mechanisms we are able to investigate and test uh, for. So let me preview the talk. We are going to look at political candidacy and electoral turnout. So this is women's participation in politics, both as candidates and as voters. And why do we look at candidates? Because uh, I'll show you numbers in a, in a few slides. but. Uh, briefly, in India's state legislatures over the last three decades, about 5.5% of the elected state legislators have been women. Okay, this is pathetic. But only 44 of the candidates have been women. So the, you know, the barrier is not coming at the voting stage. It is appearing far earlier. To just to be in contention, to become an official candidate, uh, takes a lot. So that's why we're focusing a lot uh, on candidacy. And as I mentioned, we will exploit close elections between men and women to control for unobservable differences uh, across places where women win elections and places where women do not. Because you can imagine how that these places can be very different uh, from each other. And this is technically called the regression discontinuity design. And again, major, you know, more detailed explanations are forthcoming. We will also look whether uh, this encourages new women to enter politics or uh, just improves the chances of prior candidates. And then finally, we'll conduct, construct a very simple theoretical framework, derive some implications to distinguish between different mechanisms. I'll just preview the kind of mechanisms we are looking at. And the idea is that this is, this is, there is some kind of a demonstration. effect. People, it's a very public and visible thing when a woman wins an election, because these are very, uh, as I said, these are state legislatures, these are powerful positions. Uh, so the idea is this will lead to the updating of beliefs regarding women's role in politics, whether they are qualified, whether they're desirable, et cetera. And whose beliefs are we talking about? When we're looking at women's role as voters, so primarily the belief is those of voters. But when we're looking at candidacy, it could be the beliefs of voters, it could be the beliefs of party leaders, or it could be the beliefs of potential candidates themselves uh, about what this field is like. And we've, our model will take into account three barriers to uh, the candidacy of women. One is the fact that party <coughs> machines or party officials might be biased against the entry of women. So India, as you know, is a very patriarchal society. Uh, there are exactly four major parties who are headed by women, uh, which is out of a total of about 40 major parties. So this is, you know, it's, most party leaders are men. You can imagine a variety of reasons why they just do not encourage uh, women candidates. Uh, and this has been documented not just, uh, so in India we're examining this, but in other countries, so for instance Lawless and Fox's great work in the US, where they talk to a lot of women candidates uh, or potential candidates, and they find that women are almost never asked by party leaders to step up. That Even if they have been working in in, in the political sphere or related or volunteering, very rarely asked to become a candidate, while men are. So these kind of things are there in other countries. And what we're going to see, how much does it change if a woman actually wins? There could be voter bias, Mm -hmm. voters might be very uh, unlikely to accept women in, in these uh, leadership roles. Uh, there is one paper, exactly, which looks at whether water bias changes after the implementation of these quotas at the village level. And even after having a quota, which raised the women's uh, share in local councils to 33%, uh, the authors, who are some of whom are at the Kennedy School, Rohini Pandey and Petya Topolova, <coughs> They find that water biases do change, but only after a very long time (coughs) lag. So you need to be exposed to a woman leader for 10 years before you record any changes in your, when they ask you questions like, do you think a woman (coughs) makes a good leader? So it takes a long time. And the other is this um, idea that uh, high ability women are reluctant to enter politics because they perceive this as a very, maybe, competitive environment, as a, very tough place to be, incompatible with work-life balance, or, or it can be all kinds of reasons, but the fact that when you see a woman win, other women may be inspired to come forward. So we'll try to test, sort of test between these three mechanisms just to preview what we find at the end. Uh, we find, we don't find evidence for this candidate supply thing, so we don't find a lot of entry of women into politics as a result of this, uh, seeing a woman win. We don't find much evidence for changes in voter bias we mostly find that whatever effects we have are probably attributable to these reductions in, in party bias. So it's, uh, it's you know, the good news and bad news I'll summarize also at the end. But let me preview also how we, um, what other work has been done and how we are somewhat different from the current literature. Uh, as I said, the work in India has mostly focused on the analysis of these local government quotas. But they can introduce other distortions so even though some studies have documented that they tailor spending to women's interests, mm-hmm. they have found that the women women who come to political office through quotas are not as competent as men, because they have had no prior experience at all uh, of political office. So they find things like the targeting of government benefits to poor people is worse, uh, and they're, they're not as well uh, as highly rated as by the voters on their performance, even though they're considered more honest. But on other dimensions of performance, they're not rated as well. There can be, uh, there's a paper by Secon and Titunik, which says, basically says, look, the quotas make women, uh, give women access to political office in the places where there are quotas, but what happens is then they are strongly encouraged to run as candidates only from the quota places and discouraged from running in non-quota places. So the idea is there's a quota for you, you go run there, don't come here. Mm -hmm. So there can be this kind of weird uh, backlash effect as well. And as I said, most of the analysis of India has been at the village level where parties actually do not play a role. So in many states, parties are officially prohibited from uh, taking part in local government elections. So this, a big and important barrier to candidacy is not even there. which is not even analyzed by the existing papers. Um, there There have been papers on the U.S., Spain, France. Most of them just document some stylized facts. The only paper which tests the mechanisms uh, about why uh, the entry of women is low is this paper on Spain, by CASAS, ARCE, and, and size? And we will borrow heavily uh, from their framework. So we are lucky that they wrote their paper a little bit before us. <laughs> uh, well, let me tell you a little bit about the setting. India is a parliamentary system at the federal and state level. So I should tell you, you should feel free to ask questions. So you know, raise your hand and ask me questions if things are not clear. So we are a parliamentary system, not a presidential system like the US. Uh, It's a first-past-the-post system, so it's not like a proportional representation or something like that. You win if you get the maximum number of votes. Uh, Elections are every five years. Sometimes there are these midterm elections. Uh, As I said, we focus on elections to the state legislative assemblies, not the national parliament, uh, for two reasons. One is many, many important policy decisions are made at this level. So decisions about education, health, law and order, et cetera, are made at this level. And the second is that election times are staggered across states, so we can control for a lot of time-varying things which might be uh, uh, determining overall women's participation, because uh, India is changing, so women are getting more educated, and many places are becoming more liberal towards women coming forth, and so we can control for those kind of things uh, if we use the state-level thing. Elections in India are extremely competitive, so it's the world's largest democracy. In the national elections of 2009, there were more than 100 political parties uh, in the fray. Uh, We identify about 40 of these as major parties. And we use a very generous definition of major parties, which is those which won more than 5% of the seats in any state in any year. So it's just just to note, and the reason we do this is we find that there are a lot of what I would call frivolous candidates. So if you look at... um, Uh, the state-level electoral races, there's a median of eight candidates in every race. Most of them are not really relevant uh, politically. So of these, as I said, only 2.6 on average belong to these major parties, parties which ever won anything. Uh, And only three obtained more than 5% of the votes cast. So we will show a lot of our results restricted to the major party candidates and the competitive candidates simply because these are actually politically relevant and you might increase uh, the participation of women a lot, but if there are only these irrelevant uh, candidates who don't, don't even get 5% of the vote, it's not gonna make much difference. Yeah. Question? Why is that? Want, why is such a hard Part <laughs> of the barriers to entry as an independent are very low. Mm-hmm. You just go file some paper, I think you have to collect a, not, even, not even as many signatures as in the US. Very few, you pay a deposit, which is again, quite low. So it's, I think, few thousand rupees, which is not, not enormous. And if you get less than a a certain threshold of votes, you lose your deposit, but it's not like a huge sum to lose. So I don't know, that's a good question. There was in fact one election, which I thought was a data mistake. There were 1,000 candidates, uh, 800 of whom got precisely zero votes, which I don't understand because it means even they themselves did not vote for themselves. (laughs) That's (laughs) <laughs> Those are th- that's <laughs> one of the reasons to focus on major parties is to cut out these absolutely weird things which are happening. <laughs> and I don't know why. Right.
0: So and I'm also yeah. wondering whether there's a gender interaction. I mean, there's possibly one case I could make that lower barriers to entry might be particularly good for the so far disenfranchised because they're not part of the, the groups and the fundraising. Yeah, we and could stuff. check. And we could so check. I'm just wondering. Uh, but yeah, you know, no,
1: but you actually, if the share of women <laughs> is higher within major parties. Interestingly enough, so it's not that you have a lot of women contesting as independents. Actually, the share of women among independents is lower than among major party candidates. Is it
3: a? It's a proportional representation system, isn't
2: it? No, or
1: it's a it's, it's a a,
3: system.
1: Yeah, it's a first past the post. Oh, okay. It's yeah. very
4: strange.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's very strange. It's not <laughs> like you, if you lose, you know, you actually get nothing.
4: Mm. And my my guess would be, and I'd love if you could confirm this, that for people who fall out of the major party system who are doing this as a hobby are probably vastly male. Yes. Because it's a way that people can often get um, their name out. It's a way of raising profile and stature, very low risk. It really doesn't mean anything. It's another sort of um, small barrier status marker that men use in a way that women don't, because women get marked with failure politically in a way that men don't.
1: That is true even among major parties. Yes. Yeah. I'll show you some numbers on that. But yeah, yeah, you don't see this independent, big women, number of women in the independent candidates. So I, as I said, I don't know why they do this. It's a weird hobby.
2: Question, yes? Yeah, so is this 700 million voters? Um, those are the people that are eligible to vote? Or is that actually eligible? eligible? Yeah. Oh, what, so 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 what's the participation? I'll show yeah. yeah. in a second. Should
1: be coming in a minute. OK, so I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's coming in a couple of slides to turn out numbers. So Let me talk about the process of candidate selection, since most of our paper is focused (laughs) on becoming a candidate. So in in India, there are no US-style primaries uh, for choosing the candidates of the parties. And I asked a political scientist, how do they do it? He said, oh, this is the most untransparent and under-researched part of Indian politics. (laughs) So I said, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) So the party leaders basically choose candidates for each constituencies. So we conducted interviews uh, with politicians from several different parties to just ask them, how do you do this? And basically what they told us, this is the procedure. So they usually have a short list of about two to five candidates uh, for each constituency. There's usually a a state-level committee to to make the decision. But the decision is made constituency the constituency. It's not like they have a slate of candidates and they decide where to send them. No. For each constituency, they make a kind of short list. And then they go on these big information-gathering exercises. So they start asking a lot of people in the constituency, voters, other party workers, influential people, what do you think of this candidate, what do you think of this candidate kind of thing. One party actually said they actually hire a third-party survey firm to actually go and do formal surveys. And the, it was interesting, the leader of the party said, I can't think of why other parties don't do it. I mean, they're dumb. They're, they're. <laughs> So, but so then the point is they have a short list and then they try to find out more about these candidates and I'm pointing this out because this is the way we'll model it later on, uh, and then they assess candidate quality. So I asked them what you, what is a good candidate and every single person we interviewed said a good candidate is one who wins the election. <laughs> so the main criteria is what they call winability. This is apparently a term in Indian politics, and so, you know. All the standard things you might think are important are deemed important, name recognition, <coughs> party service, financial resources, cost identity, internal party support, etc. Uh but the only big, the big criteria is they're trying to assess winnability. Yeah. They
3: they tell you something about how do they come up with this two or five list? Is it a self proclaimed candidate that comes to them and he's like, I'm interested, or they just sit around and say
1: it's both. So there is there is this about a few people sitting in a room and coming up with a list but uh, potential candidates do lobby them so we talked to a woman who who won an election and she was saying I you know for the for the year before I was trying to meet every party leader I could meet and I made a portfolio of, of all the work I had done in that area and I went to them and said look this is what I've been doing here these are all the things I've achieved for the people here and you know this is what this is why you should make me your candidate so she lobbied very actively so it both sides. So I don't know how they come up with the shortlist, but basically they start with the shortlist and then they narrow it down. Do so women have to lobby more than men have to lobby? We don't know. Because nobody. The, the, the problem is the uh, shortlist is is not available. Yeah. Even no, no they don't even record it, right? It's, it's very informal. They don't. Nobody knows what the shortlist looks like. It's impossible to get that. Mm-hmm. Is,
2: are there like candidate Is there like you know somebody that they ask? or an you know, association that can collect these names
1: that they can recommend? No. Nothing no. like no. that? They're none of them have anything like that. I said only one party even assesses these candidates using a proper survey form. Yeah. The rest just do these informal surveys. They send people to the constituency and ask.
5: Yeah. Um, is there, there must be a relationship between the uh, huge number of political parties and the, and the fact that uh, um, since they don't have a... Since you don't have a primary system the party leader chooses so if if you want to, in other words to break into politics, isn't it necessary to form one of these huge numbers of parties and and what's the and and secondly uh, uh, to what extent uh, when new parties are started, do women start them?
1: So of the 40 major parties, as I said, there are four which are headed by women. Were they founded by women? Uh, Only one was founded by a woman. So I can name you the four. One is the Congress, whose leader is Sonia Gandhi, who became leader by virtue of her ma- having the surname Gandhi. Um, uh, the second is the Trinamool Congress, which was actually founded by Mamta Banerjee, so one of the f- probably the only party which is founded by a woman. Then you have Jailalitha's party, the AIA DMK, which she took over as party leader. She didn't start the party, but you know, after the originator of the party died, there was a kind of intra-party struggle. She came up tops in the struggle. Mm-hmm. And then there is uh, Mayavati's BSP party, which again, she was not the starter of the party, but she took over the leadership after the former <coughs> uh, leader passed away. So it's just literally there are these four uh, places, yeah.
2: Is there a clear, like, ideological structure of the 40 days? I I can imagine a woman going around imagine. to every party leader and trying to structure her issues in a way that matches that party's issues, or is it just kind of almost like sponsorship more than membership?
1: So I don't understand. What do you mean by sponsorship more than membership? I'm just thinking about
2: like, the way that athletes here would just go around to lots of different companies that might sponsor them. Oh, yeah, you and can. And
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there is a fair amount of party switching. We haven't gone deep into that. But basically, becoming a member of the party is very easy. So you can become a member of the Congress by going online and <coughs> spending five minutes filling and out. Then choosing form. candidates, would they care so much about like, allegiance to party no. ideology? they don't. Mm-hmm. They, they care only about being ask them, mm-hmm. do, you, do you restrict your search to candidates within your party? No, no. We are occasionally approached by people from other parties, and mm-hmm. we are happy to consider them. So they're not worried about that. Yeah.
5: do you think her
2: not being Indian actually helps her success?
1: That's a whole other big question. I'm not going there. <laughs> now, in terms of why Sonia Gandhi has emerged as successful politician, you know, books have been written on it. Uh, but just to note that she ne- did not start the party. She was not active in politics at all. She, you know, it was a very different case. Yeah. We do not have. So I can't answer it on a global level. What we do find is that the women headed parties have a slightly higher fraction of women in them. But then the BSP is women headed but also caters to specific cast. I don't know whether, how to separate that. Yeah. So, that, as I said, the, um, the other interesting part was that very few politicians interviewed felt that women voters are more likely to vote for women candidates. So we asked them this and they said, no, oh, I think they care about the issues. And it's not. I don't care about gender, but that's their impression.
2: So, for instance, Kerala,
1: where we have actual parties with ideology,
2: like the communist parties, if a woman doesn't subscribe to that, I don't know, you know, isn't that, in that case, would it be important to subscribe to an ideology rather than shopping around?
1: Yeah, so I think that communist parties are the only ones which have a very uh, much more clearly defined ideology yeah, in Indian politics. The others shift their ideologies <laughs> a lot, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, so I think the Communist Party in that sense, we ha- as I said, we haven't looked at switching parties very much. I suspect they would have the least number of party switchers. Yeah. Uh, that's a, a different conjecture. So let me talk about the data which we do have, so that we can have an idea of what we have and what we don't have, what we can say. So as I said, we have constituency-level data on state elections over nearly three decades. And we chose this period because there was no electoral redistricting over this period. So constituency boundaries remained fixed. So we don't have to worry about things like, oh, are women mm-hmm. specially disadvantaged mm-hmm. by this, and so on. So all that is not uh, there. So we have 16 major states, 3,000-something uh, constituencies, about six elections every state, because elections are about five years uh, on average. We have data on the candidate gender, on their party, on how many votes they got on the male and female voter turnout as, as a percentage of the eligible voters. Uh, we matched candidate names across election years to identify whether the candidates were new or whether they were old, that is they had already contested in the previous one. So we've just matched the previous election and candidates spell their names very differently across different years, so it takes a long time to match this. But now we know whether they were there the previous time or not. We haven't matched it further back, whether they were there three elections ago or not, because even this took so long that we didn't bother. But mm. uh, about other candidate characteristics, we have only limited data. So since 2004, the election commission has asked all candidates to fill out like a detailed form, which gives things like what's your age, your educational status, how many assets do you have, are there any criminal charges pending against you, and things like that for the most recent uh, state election we have this information. I'll show you a little bit uh, of, of data on this uh, later when we try to assess whether our regression discontinuity strategy is really valid or whether these, these things also are different. But we don't have for the previous uh, periods this information. So what, let me just show you some descriptive numbers. This is something I already mentioned. 5.5% of legislators are female but only 4.4% of candidates. So which is why we focus on this candidacy. Uh, margin as the first state before you can even become uh, a legislator. About 70% of races had no female candidates at all. Uh, they are more, somewhat more prevalent in major parties, as I said, 5.6% instead of 4.4, the overall mean, and in women-headed parties. Now you have noticed that this underrepresentation in politics mirrors the female disadvantage in many other domains in India. Uh, women are less likely to survive to adulthood. India has a particularly uh, biased gender ratio. They have lower literacy levels, et cetera. Uh, they have, if you look at almost any marker for the population as a whole, you'll see women fare worse. It's health status, nutrition, anything. Uh, they are also uh, lower um, participation as voters. So uh, women's voter turnout over this period is 59% compared to 66% for men. Uh, the other part that I wanted to point out is even when women do win elections, they seem to have some disadvantage in terms of future candidacy. So only 65% of the women who won a specific election become candidates in the next election. And if they lose, only 31% of the runners-up become candidates the next time. And the numbers uh, for men are 71% and 40%. So even when you win, there's a, you know, it's, it's a significant challenge becoming a candidate. It's, it's not an easy task. The other thing which the interviews did uh, tell us, interestingly, was that it's never a given that the previous winner will all automatically be a candidate. They always go through this process. They always consider alternatives. So it's it's a pretty competitive uh, environment. Huh? So what do we want to do? We want to compare women's participation as candidates or voters before and after a woman wins an election. Now, you can imagine uh, you know, many, many reasons why uh, the places where women win elections are completely different from places where women lose elections. So what do we do to control for these kind of uh, observable or and unobservable characteristics, we use a sample of close elections between men and women. So we look at elections where a man and a woman were in the top two, and the winner won by a very small margin. So, we, And then we compare the constituencies where a woman just won with those where a woman just lost. Uh, and this is what we call a, a regression discontinuity framework. And the assumption there is that the gender of the winner in a close election is quasi-random. It's influenced by all kinds of things which are essentially random. And so this eliminates unobservable differences across places where women won and women did not win. I will show you several tests to support this assumption that these places are are similar in all other respects except for the fact that the woman just happened to win. And this is where the the first-pass-the-post system is important because, you know, if you win by a... 2% or 3% vote margin, you still win and the loser gets nothing. Uh, So this is the regression discontinuity equation we will use. On the left-hand side, we have an indicator, which is women's participation in constituency i of state s time t. (coughs) Could be turnout, could be uh, the fraction of female candidates. Uh, We have the, um, on the right-hand side, we have this m variable, which is the vote margin between the female and male candidates in the previous election. And then we have a dummy for whether the woman won. So the woman won dummy is takes the value 1. As soon as this m variable becomes greater than 0, it's 0 if m variable is less than 0, so it's discontinuous at the point where uh, m is equal to 0. So we control for any continuous relationship between the y and the m, and we just look at if there is a discontinuity, if there's a jump at that 0 point. So we control for this f, uh, or any other relationship between y and m in many many ways. We do uh, polynomials in m. We do local linear regressions. We restrict to a very small bandwidth around m. So, for instance, we look at only elections which are decided by uh, less than five percent uh, of the vote uh, of the voters. So, it's very close. You know, you only look at a very small area, and we sp- all our results uh, go through with all of these different tests. And As I said, we of course will restrict to elections where a woman and a man are in the top two, and this is to control for all other unobservable differences. What do we get when we do this exercise? So, if you look at the f- overall fraction of female candidates, that's the column one. You don't find uh, you find a very small increase. So You find that the female candidate share after a woman wins goes up by 1.5 percentage points, which is you know it's small, but it's also not statistically significant. So, it's, we cannot say that it is different from zero. But if you look at among major parties, actually, right? major parties are much more likely to have a woman candidate after a woman wins the previous election. Okay, so they're, the, the, they're 9.2 uh, percentage point increase in the share of women candidates. Yes? So is it for the,
3: the election
1: after Right after. them. the subsequent elections? No, No, just one election. So it's just one lag. Uh, if you look at the female share of competitive candidates, which is those who get at least 5% of the vote, there also you see an increase. And this is it, mainly because the major party and the competitive candidates are, there's a very strong overlap, right? Most competitive candidates are from major parties and vice versa. But just to show that, these, that we see the increase in female candidacy in the politically relevant candidates, not in this long tail of people who get very, very few votes. Then we uh, divided the female share of major party candidates into new females, that is people who were not there the bef- Previous year, and uh, p- women who were actually in the contest the year before, and we find that th- none of this increase, none of this nine. Oh, this pointer does it work? It doesn't, it doesn't work on the screen. does Doesn't work on the screen. That's funny. Yeah. So uh, none of this nine point two percentage point increase in the female candidacy share can be explained by new females. So this was a little bit of a no, discouraging effect, <laughs> a result there for us. I
2: right? what? It's the incumbents, exactly.
1: It's all driven by the incumbents' uh, propensity to run for re-election. It's not that it's inspiring a flood of new women uh, into politics. So this was the, this. is the good news and the bad news. You see that women are more likely to be there next time, but they're all the what we call the old women, the women who were there before. Yeah.
4: Given that India, as you just described earlier, and the four major parties are totally focused on winnability, mm-hmm. and that we do see a fabulous effect after – a woman has just won. Did you uh, spend time thinking about whether or not it's generalizable to other countries? Yes. Given, given the frenzy, uh, most places think about viability, mm-hmm. but it seems like this is way beyond that. This is really about not just could you win, but how likely are you to win to get in, which seems a little unusual, the, the intensity of it as you presented with the major parties in India.
1: Correct, that the, is very really absolute. Yeah. So um, we haven't looked at other countries. We wanted to look at the US. There is a related paper on the US, which doesn't look so, the trouble is the political systems are very different. Right. So in the United States, there is a tremendous amount of incumbency advantage. So basically, more than 90% of incumbents right. always run in, for re-election. And so when that happens, there are basically no challengers in many cases. Right. So it's a very different political system. What that other paper has found is that the, uh, a woman's victory in one election does not inspire more female candidacy in nearby constituencies. Because in the constituency itself, it's like you know once you win any election, man or woman, you are there for the next 30, 40, God knows how many years. Huh? And there you have basically very few challengers. It's very rare for an incumbent to get challenged in U.S. politics. But what he finds is that you don't get more candidacy in nearby places.
4: And in the US, you also don't get more candidacy nearby because women also find somewhat um, being up close and watching the way a woman is portrayed during a race is also something.
1: Could be, exactly. So it could be many reasons why that this, you know, even though you see her winning, you don't come forward. And it's, but you find the same thing in India, this is not even nearby, you don't even yeah. come forward within your constituency. So this is, you know, in one sense, even worse. And it's not because incumbents are so strongly entrenched in India, as I said. Only sixty-five percent of the women incumbents even get to be a candidate next time. So even incumbents have even only seventy percent of the men Mm -hmm. get to be a candidate next time. So it's not it's a much more competitive system in that sense. And still, you don't see. So can I just come that? So is what you're saying that you win a seat,
2: and the next time around, your party decides not to run you again. There's a chance that you will not be run again. Yeah, very high chance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for women, because in some countries, you know, you're uh, you're not just the United States, but even party countries that have a different system. Um, You know the the chance of being nominated, not being nominated is very very slim. Exactly,
1: and in India it's very high. So as I said, for women you have 35 percent chance of not being nominated. For men it's it's 30. So it's it's not a given at all. Hmm. Question. the turnout data, we don't have um, actually voting data, which we can try to get, but it would be a very limited sample. Nationwide, it's basically people do ex-post surveys, and then you, sometimes they ask them, whom did you vote for? But it's secret ballot, so you're not obligated to reveal it anyway. right? What we do find is that voter turnout doesn't change in the aftermath of a woman winning an election. Like, literally nothing happens to female voter turnout or male voter turnout. There's very, very little the coefficient sizes are small, they're statistically completely insignificant, so <coughs> nothing is happening on that margin. Yeah.
5: Comparing columns 4 and 2, mm-hmm. so if we look at 4 and we say that no new are coming in, yeah.
0: then I think that means the all the increase must be from the returning, but you can't increase the number of returning, so does that mean that the Number of party candidates
5: that are going down, or in other words, i just less you men. next slide.
1: So let's see. It's not number. I'll show you this graph in a minute just to illustrate the strategy, and I'll show you numbers in a second. It's just they're less likely to be men. So the women are more likely to be there. Uh, total number of candidates doesn't change. So this is the, just to illustrate what we do in our strategy, right? So this is the victory margin between the female and the male candidate. This is the M variable I showed you. When M goes above zero, a woman wins. When M is less than zero, a woman loses. And then we look at these dots are the fraction of uh, female candidates from major parties. And you can see that at this zero point, there's a big jump uh, in the fraction of female candidates. And that size of the jump is what we estimate uh, in our coefficients. So this is just a visual representation of what we're doing. And as we can see, when you look at new female candidates, first, there isn't much of a jump. Whatever there is is actually in the opposite direction. It's a little bit slightly negative. And this is exactly what we find, a small negative uh, coefficient. But this just illustrate what we're doing. I'll show you a number of these kind of graphs later. So we were looking so far at the share, which is the number of um, women candidates from major parties divided by the total number of major party candidates. And obviously, maybe more new parties enter or something. But nothing happens to the total number of candidates or the total number of major party candidates. It's not easy to start up a, a, a party and become a major party. Uh, so basically, we find that the number of female major party candidates is higher in the next election, and the number of male candidates is lower. So since each party basically gets only one candidate right in a constituency, they are much more likely to have a woman last ta- next time and less likely to have a man. So that's it's just illustrating the previous thing. Uh, so again, even if you look at number of major party female candidates, nothing really happens. You know, if anything, it is slightly lower than before. So we, one could be that it is strengthening incumbency advantage that the presence of an incumbent woman actually discourages new women from entering by saying, hey, you know, they already have a woman. It's already hard enough, and I'm not even going to try. So it could be something like that hmm, uh, happening. Uh, these effect sizes are big. So the effect size is about 39% of the mean, about sort of one in three candidates, so to speak, are, are being turned around from being male to being female as a result of a woman winning. So we do various uh, robustness checks for our uh, estimate. Our base estimate was 0.092, so 9.2 percentage points. We control for different types of of polynomials in this. So here we control for a third-order polynomial, then we control for a fourth-order polynomial. As I said, we do this test where we restrict to a very narrow band of just plus or uh, minus five percentage points, so very, very, very close elections. Our estimates are very robust to trying all these different ways of of controlling for stuff. Uh, We also control for what I call this year's state-year fixed effects. It's a kind of code. We're basically having a a dummy for every state and every election. This is to control for factors like, oh, suddenly there was a new woman leader who inspired women to enter in that election only, or... Uh, a woman took over one of the major parties, which has happened in the past, or there was some <coughs> woman-specific issue in that election, maybe, which people got all excited about. So all those things are controlled for, and we still find these effects. So it's not driven for that, but by those kind of things. Could yeah. you potentially distinguish
0: between the two channels that the two of you just identified? Namely, um, so the question is, why do not more um, new women enter? And one could be the Victoria effect. The Victoria effect what is? I've just seen a woman being elected, but I'm now so disgusted by the whole process um, and the gender bias that I've seen in that election, I'm certainly not going to run. So that could be a backlash effect. Okay. Or it could be your story, and that is um, I'm, I'm somehow thinking there are reserved seats in my head, or something. Okay. Some proportion of seats are reserved for women. Now that we have an, a woman has just won, certainly the next election is not going to be for a woman. Could you actually look at whether? more female candidates increase the likelihood that women will be elected? Because that would give you some sense of what's expected return of being right. a candidate.
1: Yeah, we should check. So what we did is we we checked, uh, it's not there on this slide, but we checked whether if a woman wins this election, a woman is more likely to win the next election, and that is not true. That is not true. We find absolutely no effect. Uh-huh. And partly I think because this election was so close, right? So it's they just won by a whisker. Uh, but it's not, and so they're they're more likely to be there in the race next time. But they're not more likely to win. They're not more likely to lose either. It's just, it's there's no effect there. So we can't fully distinguish between, as you said, the the you know, oh my God, the process is terrible. Or so there are no explicit uh, quotas for women at this level at all. Mm-hmm. It may be that people think there is an implicit quota that oh the party can only handle ten women, and you know, or. The, if they have that, we don't know because it's it's like an implicit thing.
2: Yeah. So when you talking about some of the examples of women who have taken over parties, like Lalita, I mean, there's Jayaprada, Namzi, They're all actri- like they're they already have a name recognition. They're actresses that moved into politics. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what the demographic of the women are. Are they married, unmarried? Do they have some sort of name recognition from their <laughs> career beforehand? Because looking at some of the MPs or. Uh, just looked at the Wikipedia list of like Indian actors and actresses that transitioned to politics, and the big ones you mentioned are these
1: Kushbu all these people who have like yeah. ridiculous stories. Yeah, but that's true of the men too. Yeah. yeah. You know, so there are enough mm-hmm. male actors yeah. and uh, mm-hmm. you know sports stars and yeah. whatnot in in politics. Yeah. So it's not that the men don't use these other ways of name recognition to get in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But all
2: those are those, those women are not like I. I Sort of dynamic where you have a woman who's going to be at the forefront, uh, uh, you know, going to be the the political figure and not have a husband or a partner who yeah. is not
1: in that political sphere? If that's. We haven't checked yeah. that. I mean, for, this for the female party leaders, it's just four people, so we cannot do Whatever. much with that. We haven't checked it for the overall yeah. um, population.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but yeah. Well, I
2: mean, there is an interesting theoretical issue there, though, about. Um, from she's talked about, uh, I've heard her talk about research in this area. That there is this question of whether, when women get elected, there's whether they're are proxies for their husbands. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I imagine it might actually cut, cut both ways, or yeah. others, fathers, or right, but for a, person, a man, right, for, for
1: some yeah.
4: Sort so of I mean,
1: man. that makes a difference when you have this quotas, right? You're forced to nominate a woman. And so you nominate your wife or so At this setting, it's not. Because the man can enter. They can run themselves. They don't have to nominate a woman. So in that sense, the women here are proxies. They are not proxies. Sonia
2: Gandhi, Gandhi, though, was it like, I mean, a lot of people still, that last name Gandhi also helped because she was married to, I mean, she had a son, Rajiv Gandhi, and she married into the family. And at first, I think, yeah, but right. also th- you should remember that yeah. as long as
1: Raji was alive, she was never the leader.
2: Right. Yeah. So
1: at, at this level you don't need women proxies yeah. because you can enter yourself. Okay. Yeah. That's very good. Right. It's a competitive environment. It's not the quotas world where okay. you cannot, you're forced not to enter. But there's name recognition and dynastic yeah, yeah. effect so All, all those, those things are there. I mean yeah. but I'm that in a sense translates to the women too. When you're a daughter of a prominent politician totally. or a son of a prominent politician, that is known either way. Totally. So all those things are happening. That's I'm mm-hmm. not saying they're not happening. So, um, what, how much time do I have? I have a short right? break. So let me, do, I'll run, um, I won't spend too much time on, we do a bunch, what I'm saying, we do a bunch of robustness checks for our results just to make sure they're not driven by all kinds of other weird things. And I'm just gonna highlight uh, one of these things, which is this third one. Because one of the things, criticism which has been made for using the regression discontinuity design in the United States is that the people who win in close elections are actually different. They're the ones who have more money, or they have the ones who have a longer history of incumbency and stuff like that. So you're mixing up the effects of gender and these incumbency or money and so on. So that was the one of the things we wanted to verify, that the winners and losers of close elections are similar in other aspects, like their, you know, their network, their education, how many criminal charges have been filed against them, and, and so on. So in India, it's a, it's a bit dramatic, actually. If you look at the overall statistics, about 30% of our candidates, uh, 30% of male candidates have some criminal charges filed against them. It's only about, eight, I think, 15 or 18% for women. So they're less criminal uh, in that sense, or maybe they just haven't had enough time to <laughs> accumulate the charges. Uh, but uh, the point to note here is I'm drawing you the same kind of regression discontinuity graphs. There is no discontinuity at that point in these kind of characteristics of the candidate, so we're not mixing up gender with some other uh, thing like this. Okay, so that uh, it just gives us more confidence mm-hmm. that what we're estimating is actually the effect of gender uh, of the candidate, of the winner, not some other characteristics of the winners. So that's just uh, a robustness check we do. And then we do also do other checks. Uh, I want to show a couple of other results. Uh, one is we, instead of having a regression discontinuity, we just ran a very simple OLS regression of the full sample, and we find very similar results, actually. So that gives us confidence that, you know, it's not some peculiarity of this technique which is uh, driving all our results. Uh, uh, it's actually generalizable to the whole sample. The other thing which we can test in, uh, in the OLS is that there is no effect on future candidacy of good electoral performance in general. You have to win, if you come a close second, it doesn't matter for female candidacy next time. It's, it's a winner-takes-all game, uh, which was interesting. So it's not that people are updating on candidate abilities in some <coughs> continuous way and something like that. The, fi- the third thing we checked is where there are spillover effects to other constituencies. So if a woman wins in this constituency, does it encourage more female candidacy elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't find any. So we include sort of the fraction of women uh, winning in other areas of the district as an additional variable that has absolutely no statistical uh, predictive power. We checked also uh, using the regression discontinuity setting if there is candidacy, more female candidacy in areas other than your constituency, if if a woman wins in your constituency, again, there's almost nothing. So it's it's very localized uh, effect. And then we also check whether it's persistent. Uh, And this is uh, the first few columns summarize what I told you before. I want you to look at the last two columns where we are looking at this persistence. And we're looking at if a woman won in your constituency two elections ago, do you have more women uh, candidates right now? You have a smaller effect. So it's, you know, our base coefficient there was 9.2 percentage points. This is like 4.2 percentage points. It's there, but much smaller. By the time you get to three elections out, there's basically no effect. Uh, And I think this is tied to the fact that it's not, it's really tied to whether the woman wins or not. It's just good performance or just being there doesn't seem to be enough. You, in a sense, have to prove that you can win. Uh, But it's just an interesting pattern to note. It's not very persistent. It's not a permanent change and and so on.
0: Uh, Can can you give us a bit, I mean, I think, again, many of us are probably trying to generalize to other places, Um, a bit more context um, for these particular elections in the sense of how widely available is that information? Meaning, is there media coverage? Is yeah, yeah, yeah in the newspaper yeah. But for other constituents as well. So others, so this uh, would be pretty, as I'm trying to think of, should we have expected spillover effects? Or yes. should we not? Or how should I think about this? Or should that's we even right, think about right. spillover effects in terms
1: of geographical distance, and yeah. respect so my so neighboring, but not? So that's or right, so maybe the, the media coverage is typically, you know, you'd know who won in your place, and you'd know the overall results, right? Because, so, so, for instance TV networks would cover the overall election so yes. they will say oh this party won this many seats and if they focus on women they'll say this, there are this many women they will, not, they will not tell you where they are from yeah. so mm-hmm. that could be one way that I mean, they're not very interested in telling you that much detailed information you can always go and find out sure but it's not but in, it's in, in your face, face. Yeah. that's what I'm exactly. trying to understand exactly. so from the voters point of view it's really not in your face if you were a potential candidate you might find out and you can find out very very easily because just like we found out, you just go online and yeah. look it up, who won where. Uh, so if you're a potential candidate and taking this seriously, it's very easy to find out. From the voters' point of view, you have to go to that much effort, and that may be too much for the voter.
5: Uh,
1: so but on, y- on your own place, yeah, because local newspapers would cover who won in your local area. Mm-hmm. Uh, So now, as I said, we construct a very simple theoretical model uh, to try to separate these effects and to illustrate when and where we will see this kind of um, effects. And this model incorporates three barriers of two entry. We have voter bias. We capture this by a parameter uh, dv, which is uh, basically a bias against women. And I'll show you uh, how we make it into a bias. Uh, And then we have a party bias. And again, it's just a taste discrimination parameter. Parties just don't like women. Voters just don't like women. And, you know just to keep things very simple. And the third one is this candidate supply thing, which is a, a, a shift in the ability distribution of potential candidates to the right. That means more qualified women are now in the pool uh, of potential candidates. And so you know, this is very simple, but it's observationally equivalent. if you write down a statistical discrimination model where women are always assumed to have lower ability. It's basically the same uh, as this. So it's, uh, and we make some assumptions, which are, I think, uh, not, not, uh, not too bad. One is that party policy positions are decided before the candidates are selected. Uh, And this is to keep things simple, because otherwise we have party positions as well moving around, but also in the Indian setting, it's actually correct. Because the party positions are set by the state-level party long before they start, even the start of the process of candidate selection. Uh, We also assume that candidate ability is known to voters before they vote. Uh, And again, just to avoid any effects of uncertainty and updating and so on. And it's fixed over time. We assume that it's uh, full water turnout. And this is consistent with our empirical results that turnout doesn't actually change uh, uh, when a woman wins. So it's, I think it's fine to assume it in the model. And we also assume that parties choose candidates simultaneously. There's no sequential game or strategic game play being played here. And I'll show you very uh, mm, So the timing is that first, the potential candidates, male and female, decide whether to be in contention or not. So this creates the candidate pool from which parties are going to choose. And then the parties choose their candidates uh, like this. So they make a random draw from the pool of men and a random draw from the pool of women. Right? So in our, in our model, this is the way the shortlist is created. There's a short list of two. They compare the abilities. So after they make the draw, they find out the abilities of these uh, candidates. They compare them, and they choose uh, the one. It's not always the one with the greatest ability, as I will show you, because it depends on their uh, biases against women. And then finally, the voters vote because there and there they know the abilities, they know the policy preferences, they know the genders. Yeah. Do you have a question? Yeah. Uh, so this is just to formalize what I said. There's a party zero and there's a party one at two extremes. Uh, these are the policy positions. There's a voter in the middle. Uh, the voters' the voters' utility is given by uh, this negative term, p minus x. So. It depends on the voter at point X, how far he or she is away from the party's position, and which could be 0 or 1. Uh, the AP is the ability of the candidate from party P. And then this is the voter bias against women. So if party P nominates a woman, so that WP is 1, the voter is less likely to vote for them because there's a minus DV. There. And this is just capturing that for a given ability level, women get less votes. Okay, This is just bias. Um, And then uh, the parties, right? The parties basically are maximizing their vote share, which works out with this once you give give, put in the voter behavior, but they're maximizing not simple vote share, they're maximizing vote share minus a disutility, a DP, which they have if they have a woman candidate. So this is basically capturing their bias against women. They just don't like having women. And so even if, you know, so they're willing to, in a sense, sacrifice some vote share just to avoid having them in there. Uh, And so as I said, we have the ability distributions. Parties draw a random sample from the male and female candidate pool. The abilities are are revealed. So if if you think about party 0, they get a woman of ability AW and a man of ability AM. They're maximizing their vote share, that's the XM, minus this disutility they have for having a woman. They take the choices of the other party to be given. And the main thing I would like you to focus is this equation here. So a woman candidate is chosen over the man, not if AW is greater than AM, which would be a very you know uh, a model with no bias, which is you just choose the higher ability person. That's not what they do. They choose the woman over the man only if AW is greater than AM plus two other terms, which incorporate the water bias and the party bias. So in this sense, the woman has to be much better than a man to get it. And so that the, the thing to note is uh, that this captures all our mechanisms so far. This is the one key equation. If DV goes down, right? if the water bias goes down, women are more likely to be chosen because the threshold is lower. If D0 goes down, which is the party bias, again, they're more likely to be chosen. And if the distribution of As for women shifts to the right, that means you're much more likely to get higher values of AW women are more likely to be chosen. So you know, what we showed so far in a sense is consistent with all of these things. Now we try to separate. Okay? So the first separating e- equation we have is that if the voter bias dv goes down, right? the idea is that both parties should be more likely to nominate women candidates. So if you look at this equation, uh, d0 is like the party 0's bias. d1 would be the party 1's bias. But if dv goes down, both parties are affected. they both have a similar looking equation so both parties are more likely to nominate more women and so we can use this to separate with between a voter bias hypothesis and a party specific bias or party specific mechanism so what we do here is we regress we put the um, percentage of women on the left hand side Uh, so it's not percentage it's just a dummy for whether your party has a woman And we regress it on the original variable for whether a woman won, but then we interact it with whether you're the incumbent party, so whether you are the party from which the woman won. So this additional woman who is coming in next time, is it from the party from which the woman won, or is it the opposition who's putting up a woman this time? And this will tell us whether it's... Because if it's the voter bias, we should actually see no difference. Both parties are equally likely to put up a woman next time, and so we're going to test whether this coefficient B11 uh, is 0 or not. And what we find is that this B11, which is the first line, is very far from zero. It's highly positive. Mm-hmm. So all the increase in candidacy is literally coming from within the party where the woman won. The opposition is not putting up more women. So in one sense, the very party-specific effect. Okay? So you see the two different two dimensions of the narrowness of our effect. One is the local geographic dimensions, only within your constituency. And the second is only within your party. Because okay? so it's not that other parties are reacting. So that's the first thing. So we say it's not really that generalized voters change their uh, view or something like that. So now within the party, you can again have two different things. You could be that the bias of party leaders goes down, or more women come forward within the party. And we again, we can use our model to generate two separating hypotheses for this. So one is that if the party bias falls, the ability threshold for women candidates is lower. Okay? So if a new woman is chosen as a candidate, she has to satisfy a lower threshold than before. So on average, the ability of new women candidates is going to be lower than it was in the previous regime. Okay, not lower than men. You always have to beat out the man, but it's lower than what a new woman had to satisfy before. While if it's a rightward shift in the candidate distribution, that means you're much more likely to get these high values of AW, Is the other way around, right? The women who get selected now are much more of higher ability than before. So we can use this to separate whether it is the party bias going down or the ability distribution shifting. And the way we do that is we look at this, we use the vote share of a candidate as a proxy for their unobservability. We really cannot measure ability, so it's like a proxy. Uh, and we look at the vote share of new female candidates, and we see what happens to that variable after a woman wins. So if it is just the party bias reduction, we should see a negative effect on this, cof- on this uh, whether the woman won or not, because that's that corresponds to the lowering of that threshold. And if it's the candidate supply hypothesis, we should see a positive coefficient. So again, we can try to separate between these two hypotheses. I, I, yeah. t- I, I have to confess,
0: yeah. I don't understand the candidate co- yeah. supply effect. So, so help me understand why, yeah. now su- that I'm thinking,
1: yeah. oh yeah, no. Candidate supply, that so DV doesn't change, D zero doesn't change, it's just you're much more likely to get high values of AW now. Because more women are more qualified women. of higher oh, so coming that's in. how you define it. Because
0: exactly. Because I could tell a story that D also affects the lack of that I no, no, stand exactly. Stand as Exactly. So that, it's lower now, more likely. Of I course. See. So That's how you define it.
1: But this it? is what, we, this just comparative statics, right? We assume that the other two things are not there, and only this changes. Right? So you could have secondary effects. If D zero goes down, more women come forward, and yes. so on. So we are saying, suppose nothing happens to D zero, but still more women come forward, just I because see. of the role I model effect, yeah. and so yeah. on. That, yeah, so we, we are assuming that only one of these is in action at a given time. So, but the idea is it provides us some separating hypothesis to distinguish different mechanisms. Uh, so we run this equation. And what we find is that the vote share of new female candidates actually goes down uh, after a woman wins. Right? And that's very interesting because you're measuring the vote share of new female candidates both times. It's not like you're measuring old versus new. Is the previous time also it was the new, and this time is the new, and they are less successful than before. Uh, that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing, as I said, because it corresponds to the lowering of the threshold I- in our model. But it is a test to say, yeah. How do you calibrate a bias change or a shift bias? So we don't calibrate it. We just say, if it's a change in bias, what do we expect to observe yeah. in the data we have? Right? if we could measure the bias, that would be fantastic. We are using sort of a vote share of the candidate as a measure of their <coughs> ability, so to speak, right? And what we're saying is if the bias within the parties have gone down, right, they would be willing to make a woman their candidate even if she's not as <coughs> able as before. Because earlier she had to clear a really high bar. And now she has to clear a, little, a slightly lower bar than before. Within the
3: party.
1: Within the party. Mm. Mm. Exactly. With voter bias, it's more like, oh, so you know, same woman which we had put up last time is going to get more votes this time because the voters have changed. Right. I don't have to change my candidate ability at all. But I'm more willing to make her a candidate because voters have changed their views. Right? Sure. Earlier, it was like, OK, I want to make this woman the candidate, but the voters are not going to vote for her. But then that's the idea we said that should happen to both parties. And it doesn't happen to both parties. We haven't done anything with media yet, actually. So we haven't, it's something we can explore. We just have not done anything with media in this paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: One thing can't be is that there is some random effect at that like, uh, small bandwidth <coughs> right, at the discontinuity. Yeah. But everyone knows that in a way, right? Like, in, like, if, I mean, if there is a, 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 a woman who wins like by a small margin, mm-hmm. people may know that that is maybe perhaps at that level some random component, correct and you would expect in a way that not to really have Then nothing should
1: change exactly so nothing should change as a result but it does change right but but that's the interesting part but
3: but at the at at the you know at the far end i mean you have like the the leaders we were talking about the female leaders they're the ones who sort of handily won like elections and they're the effect that they have on like uh female entry in the future maybe much more uh, uh, pronounced. I, I mm-hmm. mean, I, I, from I, I guess it can't be teased out from this design, but based on your reading on the data, mm-hmm. do, you get, do you get that sense
1: at all? So, if we do, as I said, if we run a sort of like an OLS regression, so the regression discontinuity for the whole sample, we get a very similar coefficient. So, the coefficient we get something for the regression discontinue, we got some, mm-hmm. a 9.2 percentage point effect. For the OLS, I think we got an 11.5 percentage mm-hmm. point effect. So, it's very close, just surprising to us uh, that it was that close. So, yeah. in that sense, it is generalizable. Uh, it's, it's just that the places where women win very handily might be so different than places where women win by a small hair. that We can't tease out that it's the woman winning versus these other characteristics of that area. You know, that there's not the areas where women are really, but uh, the whole population is really progressive or something. That's why we use the design. But it's interesting that the, if you use the whole sample, it's very close. Hmm. Yeah?
4: Did you ever break it out? And I don't know if there enough elections to do it. Uh-huh. So, your um, time horizon was 1980 to 2007. Correct. 1980 to 1984, if I'm correct, Indira Gandhi. Yes. And I was just deeply curious if you found any different effect for those four years Mm -hmm. or the few years after
1: that? We have not done that. Mm. We have not done that because, yeah, having a woman prime minister, clearly, very visible, We have not done that, but we can easily do and it. And then given that there hasn't been one since, yes, like was there
4: an effect you could see? Did it taper yeah. off? You know, What did it mean?
1: Yeah, we haven't done it. Yeah. That's true, a- and then for the regional them.
4: ones that may have abutted Pakistan, what would it mean when Bhutto was there? Mm. It, it would be a way of kind of getting a sense, and I don't know mm. enough about India's media markets, but I- if one did, one could really get a sense of what are those... Impacts.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, my hunch is that nothing would happen with Benazir in Pakistan simply because people would say that's a different country. So, so you don't think there context? would be an
4: unconscious bias spillover effect? I don't know. Because she'd be it's in like the news test. constantly, and it, yeah, I yeah, would yeah, imagine yeah. even if one disregarded her, yeah, disregarded yeah, yeah, culturally, yeah. that one would still have an effect of women are leaders, whether yeah. I like negate them or not.
1: Yeah, you know, this at least right. this is this is very useful because this is easily. And for both
4: it. of them, I- if you use both, one of the other pieces, which I think skew this, is whether they're actually seen as female or if they're just seen as daughters of their fathers and dynastic. But since they're the same, whatever the effect is, should hold Correct. true. Correct. Both, both of
1: them are daughters of famous fathers. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. No, this is this is good. This is something easily done. Yeah.
5: Uh, it's interesting that Ceylon and Bangladesh have also had. Women prime ministers. But uh, the question I wanted to ask um, I think you told us at the beginning of the talk that the LOCS Saba has uh, 11% female candidates, whereas the average in the state and local level is around 5%. That's a sharp, that's almost, that's, that's more than two to one difference. and I wondered if you had you know,
1: any ideas about that. Time. So the 11% is what is current. Oh. So the 5.5% was over average over the last three decades. So in the state, over the last three decades, it has gone, the candidacy share, I think, has gone up from 2% to 7%. I should check. The actual female legislator share uh, in the states now is also around 10%. So that's it's not widely different. Right. It's just the average for the entire period was 5.5 because it started from 2 to 3%, which is very, very low. Thank
5: you. Yeah.
1: So let me let me just wrap up. Uh, oh, should, do I have time to show one more thing? We look at one more thing, which is the effect of these uh, local government quotas, which I said. So I said the idea was, well, maybe we don't see a big supply of women coming into the thing, because for a lot of this period, you know, where would the parties get potential uh, new women to nominate, even if they wanted to, or even if the women wanted to come forward, there were none. So we're, we thought, well, now in 1993, uh, India instituted this one third quota at the local government level, so at the village and the district level, which is. The district is right below the state in the administrative structure. So you said, OK, once this quota is implemented, you have at least a new pool of women leaders who have held some political office, who have some experience of the political process. Maybe after this period, uh, you'll see a bigger refa- bigger response from, from new candidates or, or uh, in general. So that's what we, tra- we, tra- we use. And the idea is that the, go- the advantage is that different states implemented this local government quota in different years which is what I used in my previous paper which I presented here, but we can use the same thing here. And we run this regression where we look at the female candidate share, we look at the effect of the woman winning, and we see whether the effect of the woman winning is bigger in the post-quota period. So after these quotas are in place, do you get a bigger uh, candidacy response, which would at least make us say that, okay, something translates upwards from the local government to the higher levels. So if we find that this coefficient on that interaction is greater than zero, It would mean that there is some room for the candidate supply hypothesis to be working. And what we find is actually very disappointing. We find absolutely no effect of this interaction. So uh, it's statistically insignificant. We don't see a much bigger effect after the quotas are in place. So it's not, uh, which is a little discouraging. And in fact, when we asked the politicians uh, how you choose candidates, we said, Do you consider the district level uh, officials, uh, or the elected officials at district and village level? They said, well, maybe I'm not. You know, we don't go looking for them at that level. They were very kind of very. They were almost dismissive of the local government uh, officials, which is a little interesting. So, mm-hmm. my, my idea might not be working, but with the
0: post quota, I think you only have this is a zero one whether the quota was introduced Correct. or not, but not whether a woman actually was randomly selected. Right. The quota yeah. is just the
1: introduction of the, the law. Yeah, it's exactly. So, but the law. But
0: I'm just saying an alternative specification would be to say. Was, was a woman actually randomly selected to be the village leader?
1: Yeah, but if, if it was part of the quota, she was. So one third oh, of all the oh villages. Means, oh, I sorry. The quota I just means the, that once the
0: introduction of the law generally. No, 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 no. Oh, this is, this this is, is when exactly the state implemented,
1: implemented it, actually. It. Exactly. Yeah. So there was nineteen ninety three with the constitutional yeah. amendment, but different states took their own time oh, to do it. So this is when you actually started having one third of, of women uh, in all these councils. So there are, by some counts, like more than a million women in political office in India because of this one third quota. But unfortunately, it doesn't translate into higher levels. Uh, they're not able to make that transition to the state level. Uh, so let me just wind up. So I said we find a significant increase in women's political participation as candidates following a woman's electoral victory and no impact on their participation as voters. Uh, that's the good news. Uh, the not so great news is that most of the increase is due to prior candidates contesting <coughs> again. This is again not a terrible thing because as I said, there's a very high probability, you know. So, The only 65% of female candidates run again anyway. So, uh, you know, in one sense, let's take what we can get. So we get a woman who has run before, but at least we get a woman. But there's no evidence of entry of new women into the political process. That is really the not-so-good part of our results. Uh, The detested implications of a stylized model, again, (laughs) it suggests a reduction in within-party bias as a driving mechanism rather than a reduction in voter bias or an increased supply of potential candidates. Uh, finally, the implementation of quotas at the lower level of government does not translate into a higher candidacy response at the higher levels. And so I think the <coughs> net summary is that our results imply a very limited role for women's electoral success to generate a large sustained increase in the political participation. So if you leave it the process to itself, it's going to take a long time. It is very slow. It is very limited geographically and party-wise. Uh, so, if somebody wanted to implement quotas, you could use this as a rationale by saying that <coughs> left some, the process is not going to achieve gender parity very soon. That's um, <laughs> to <the> talk. <laughs> <laughs>
2: We've got got a mix of academics and practitioners out there. Maybe we'll mobilize someone in this room to be part part of driving the institutions to change that. Yeah, thank you so much. Very powerful stuff. Really great. Um, I hope you all will join us next week. Kathy Tinsley is a professor of management at Georgetown is going to talk about progress on gender diversity in corporate boards. So we're going to shift the topic. Thank you again. Thank you.